welcome to Of Dust and Divinity, an ongoing conversation with makers, thinkers, and doers, where we ask big questions of the small things. Yeah, that's definitely an inner monologue of um, if I'm if I am charging people, then I can't completely care. Like I'm caring about the money, not the people. And I think it's a lot of that is because that is a that is a model that we've seen from a lot of businesses, and a lot of businesses um, do that, and they don't do the people part well. Uh, but they're really good at selling things. And then there's people that um, do the people part really well, but then they don't charge what they're worth. And so in a lot of ways, it it almost does feel sometimes like you have to choose one or the other. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of, of Dust and Divinity. And I wanted to share just a little bit extra, more than I normally do, about this week's guests. So this week we have Jared Lopes, who founded and leads the Dad Tired community, which includes an incredible podcast, uh, seminars when, of course, we're not dealing with COVID, and incredible resources. Jared's written a couple of books that are just flying off the shelves about how we as dads can really step up to the plate and lead our families well. So I encourage you to go check out dadtired.com and go follow Jared and what he's doing. Our other guest is Elizabeth Bennett, and she has really influenced my life quite a bit in my own journey and story and coming out of ministry because she leads an Instagram page called Enneagram Life, Enneagram.life. And there is just so much wisdom pouring out of that page every single day of the week that it is just one of the things that I make sure the algorithm never forgets to show me. So head over to Elizabeth's Instagram page, follow her. Um, you can find her personal page as well by looking up her name, Elizabeth Bennett and get some coaching to help understand your own journey and your own wiring in a more liberating and freeing way. So I'm just incredibly excited about this week's episode. Between Jared and Elizabeth, they impact tens of thousands of people on a weekly basis. So I really wanted to hunker in and first of all, just get to know them as people. So we start just by talking about coffee and we just connect human to human. And then we get into some really great stuff around authenticity, um, particularly because both of their platforms are based on knowing people. So how do we know people and stay authentic when there's kind of a pretty large group of people listening? And then the second half with Jared and Elizabeth that will drop on Thursday gets a little bit deeper into the Enneagram itself, talks about some of the dark sides of the Enneagram and ways that we've been hurt by it, things that we're learning from it. So I'm just really excited to share this conversation with you guys, Um, get to know Jared and Elizabeth a little bit more personally yourselves, and begin to learn from their wisdom. So with that long preamble, which I don't usually do here, I am just excited to turn it over to them and their voice as they introduce themselves. Enjoy the episode. Well, my name is Jared Lopes. Uh, I am a dad and a husband and a follower of Jesus. And I'm trying to figure out all of those things <laughs> to this very day, trying to figure out how to grow in all of those areas as a husband, a dad, and a follower of Jesus. Um, I get to spend a lot of time at home. I work from home, so I get to spend a lot of time practicing what it looks like to be a husband and dad every day. 
And uh, I'm also a author and a speaker and a podcast host. And I do all three of those kind of geared around helping dads, what I like to say, stumble their way to spiritual leadership. So I didn't grow up with a dad. I didn't grow up having any idea what it looks like to try to lead my family closer to Jesus. And, um, and so now as a dad and a husband that's trying to figure that out, I'm just working hard to be intentional about growing in those areas. And, um, and I write books and speak and, and talk to other people, other dads who are also trying to do the same. And we just kind of try to rally around each other and be the best men that we know how to be in the midst of our brokenness. So that's me in a nutshell. So my name is Elizabeth Bennett, and I am a certified Enneagram coach, soon to be author of nine Enneagram devotionals, and am the co-founder of Enneagram Life, which is an Enneagram-rich Instagram page. Um, however, my everyday life looks a lot more like just your average stay-at-home mom. I have a two-year-old son, a daughter on the way, and a very supportive husband. I'm in my mid-20s. I was homeschooled um, kindergarten through graduation, and I've never moved farther than 15 minutes from the hospital I was born at here in Olympia, Washington. Although I never went to college, I have a cosmetology license, have owned a small business on Etsy, was a department manager at Hobby Lobby, worked at a day spa for two years, and have now been studying the Enneagram in depth for three years, which turned into its own um, small business. Um, I am identify as a follower of Jesus Christ, and my faith has always been the most important piece of who I am. Um, if I could clone myself and do two occupations, my clone would probably be being a professional counselor, helping others work through past traumas. And I'm your host, Caitlin Kramer. I'm a fourth-generation California farmer farming walnuts on fertile concow land along the edge of the Feather River. I'm a husband and father to two awesome kids. I identify as a white male, and I'm loving my 30s. Formally, I'm educated as an engineer, though I've never actually practiced engineering as a profession. I identify as a follower of Jesus, and I find the teachings and lifestyle of Jesus attractive. If I could clone myself and do two occupations, my clone would probably be a cultural anthropologist. So I'm really curious about your coffee habits and you might just be like, Hey, I'm not a coffee person. I don't do that. I'm not, I don't, I don't drink Satan's juice, but if you do have some coffee habits, just walk us through, what does it look like for your morning coffee routine? I'll start. Um, sounds like Elizabeth and I are both in the great Northwest, which is kind of a coffee snob, rich environment. Um, <laughs> Uh, so I, when I moved to Oregon about 10, 11 years ago, I was not a coffee drinker and then I became a husband and dad. And that just felt like one of the things that you have to do if you're a husband and dad and you live in the Pacific Northwest is drink a lot of coffee. So I started doing it. I started with really like the, uh, sweet coffee drinks and then it just got a little bit, it wasn't that I didn't enjoy them cause I did enjoy all the, um, very sweet drinks, but it just became very expensive and very complicated. And if I wanted like a cup of coffee in the morning, I didn't want to have to go out and get something sweet and I didn't want to learn how to make something sweet. And so I started drinking black coffee and then that led to me trying to go pour over to be like real Portlandy, real uh, Oregon, Pacific Northwest, like grind the beans, look for all the, the right place. Anyway, it got way too complicated and I have uh, a little bit of ADD and I'm very fast paced. And so I have digressed and gone backwards. And now I drink a Keurig black 
cup of uh, stale coffee every morning. Yes, Jared is very right about the coffee snobbery that is the Pacific Northwest. <laughs> um, I have actually been drinking coffee since I was 13 years old, um, at least once a week, um, usually because I was homeschooled. I was at home with my mom and she would have friends come over and they would drink coffee. And about once a week, I would get to have coffee too. And so coffee has been a pretty big part of my life for a while. Um, but I would, I, I don't know if I would rate myself as being a complete coffee snob. I definitely know those people, but I'm also, I'm not on the end that I would ever drink Folgers. Um, so I'm somewhere kind of in the middle. Um, although, um, I drink coffee from a Keurig, but I buy, um, my K cups from a local coffee roastery, um, here in Olympia called Olympic Crest. And so, um, I have that coffee, which is, absolutely amazing and I love it. And then um, I use a little bit of coconut milk um, because dairy doesn't really agree with me. And then I also put in some raw sugar and that is how I have my coffee. That's amazing. I, uh, sorry to interrupt, but that's a, that's a, I didn't even realize that like local places would do the, the Keurig plan. Now I need to go look into some places. Yeah, no, I was, I was impressed too. And they're actually uh, quite a bit cheaper than you can buy in the store. And they also have like a hmm. punch card program. So every, uh, oh, a 10th bag I get of these K cups, I get for free. So I'm like, yes, thank you. <laughs> All right. Well, now you just added another thing to my to-do list for the day. And I, I love that Jared, your progression from like nothing to everything to like some middle ground <laughs> is beautiful because, and then we see that in the market, right? Cause then the small coffee shops are like, Oh, we need to make our own K cups. That way we can keep winning <laughs> totally. all the Jared's and Elizabeth's of the world as customers. <laughs> totally. right? Cause like that's my own journey too. I got super into it. It got super complicated. I had like my own pour over station that I built myself and I had all this stuff done and I did all the research and I was like, man, that's exhausting to maintain that routine for like <laughs> it is. any significant amount of my life. So I've also regressed and it's awesome that like the kind of snobbish end of third wave, third wave coffee has kind of caught onto that and been like, okay, all right, let's make it more accessible for everyone. <laughs> That's funny. I had, I really had no idea that, that, that local coffee shops, I'm going to go to everyone. Although I live in a really small little suburb now. So we've got like two coffee shops, but I'm going to go to both of them. And if they don't have it, I'm going to convince them that they should. Yeah. You guys just recently moved to the country, didn't you, Jared? Yeah, we, um, we did it. It's in a really small, I think there's like 6,000 people here. So it, I know that's not for some people in the country, that's still big, but for the Portland suburbs, that's really small. And, um, we just needed, we felt like we wanted a little bit more space to spread out and let the kids run around. Um, so it's been nice. We just bought four chickens. So I'm nice. like, I'm entering into Cabin World a little bit. Dude, uh, it's a gateway drug. Yeah. I, I can, I 100% can see that. Even just having four chickens, I'm like, got that itch for the, like the homestead, wanted to start figuring out how I can grow bigger garden. And then I, I went on a deep rabbit trail. Uh, or deep rabbit hole and on YouTube the other day of like collecting rainwater. And I'm like, I'm getting yes. too deep. This is, this is getting real deep. That That's what I used to do in Uganda is I would build rainwater collection systems for, wow. for schools and stuff. Yeah. Wow. That's awesome. Elizabeth, do you have a garden? 
Um, I currently do not, but where I grew up, um, my parents live on three acres of land and my dad has always been a very prolific gardener. So I grew up with at least a half acre of corn every August and tons of raspberry bushes and tons of chickens. That that was the only farm animal we were able to have. But I tell you, there is such a thing called chicken math that I've heard of, which is one chicken (laughs) turns into six chickens, which turns into 12 chickens. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden you have 50 chickens and very true. Yeah, that that's our story, Elizabeth, exactly. Because when we lived in town, we used to live in the suburbs and we had 12 chickens in our backyard. Then we moved out here to the family farm and our 12 chickens went to 25 chickens and then it went to 50 chickens and then it went to hatching our own eggs from our chickens wow. to then building chicken tractors out in the orchard to now we have like we have over a hundred chickens so far and we're still, you know, hatching our own chicks. So that number is only going to go up in batches of about 30 to 40 chickens every three weeks. And then now we've gotten it. Here's where now we've gotten into the game of Guinea fowl. Cause now that we've got the chickens out there, we want them to free range, but we have coyotes and bobcats and other things. So we need some kind of like flock alert, flock protectors. So we're looking at Guinea fowl and peacocks and other kind of birds that can help manage the flock. And then we just started our first two pigs this year because eventually we want to have pigs free ranging in our orchard as well. And we see that escalating to soon having sheep. Yeah, it's there. You live in my dream, man. Dude, it'll it'll take you, man. It'll take you places. Man. (laughs) One other question I had about coffee, and this is something that I was thinking about the other day, because in our house, my wife gets up before me, and so she typically makes the coffee. And there are some times where the farm work means that I have to get up earlier than her. And on those mornings, I make coffee. And on one of those mornings, I was making the coffee. And as the aroma of the coffee beans came up to me through our grinder, because we have a nice little electric burr grinder, and I smelled this coffee, I had these flashes of images of this grower in Costa Rica harvesting these lush red berries off of a coffee plant. And of this little boy in Indonesia running around making little dust clouds as his mom threshed the dried coffee beans on the woven mats in the harsh sunlight. And I caught, you know, I had all these images come to me of people who are part of what it means to consume coffee, these real people all over the world. And I had this moment of lament, honestly, of like, oh, I don't, I don't get to participate in that ritual every day. Because it's not, I, I'm not the one who makes the coffee. But then it made me wonder, like, does anyone else think these thoughts? <laughs> do, is coffee just caffeine or do you ever feel connected to a bigger story when you're drinking coffee? Uh, well, I, I, I certainly have not had those vivid images, that, but I'm not surprised that you have, Cabin, just knowing you for as long as I've known you. <laughs> that, that sounds like a very uh, Cabin, uh, you know, image for me which is i love that about you uh i and this maybe get we'll get into like what what we can talk about elizabeth i love hearing your background and kind of your expertise but um the three side of me and my enneagram my connections with coffee uh, kind of always go back to business and uh and and business and and both like for profit and then also like kind of the the ministry side nonprofit side of me so whenever i've had deeper thoughts of coffee beyond just a boost of caffeine in the morning. I think through like, how do we, um, 
get to know the coffee farmers throughout the world? How can we support them and what they're doing? Uh, and then also, how can that turn into guys here specifically for what I'm doing in the dad tired world and the, the audience that I'm trying to uh, help? Uh, how can we get those guys some really good coffee that they know where it comes from and they're help supporting the people who helped grow it? So that's about as far as I've gone on the deep coffee thoughts. Yeah, like Jared, I definitely have not had those types of deep thoughts about coffee. Although as I'm hearing you talk about it, Cabin, I wish I have. Um, <laughs> I think a lot of my thoughts about coffee, um, especially the smell of coffee in the morning and stuff like that, there's just something about it that makes me feel like myself and um, that really makes me feel at home. Um, even as I think of like the vacations my families have had, my family has had, coffee in the morning is still a staple in those vacations. And that was always something that felt really grounding to me. And I even um, bring my own mug on vacations. I'm very mug um, particular. And either the mug has to have some sort of nostalgic meaning, it needs to um, represent something about me, or I just have a huge um, collection of Polish pottery mugs as well. And so I think I have had thoughts of like, even um, just the process of making pottery and like these mugs and um, just how perfectly my hands fit around it and it's cozy and warm and just kind of getting to be part of that experience. That's amazing. I love that phrase that coffee makes you feel like yourself. I think part of even what makes me say that now is because um, when I am pregnant, I don't want coffee <laughs> for the most part. And it's so weird because it, it is such a um, staple in my um, just daily rhythm and in my life and just in culture in general here in the Northwest. And so um, I recognized after I had had my son that going back to the, oh, I want coffee in the morning. And even my husband usually makes me a cup of coffee after we have dinner at night, like once kids go to bed and stuff. And it's very calming to me. Um, yeah. And there's just something about that smell and just how much I like coffee that um, just is like, oh, this is just, this is part of me. And this is such a staple in my story of just always kind of having this around smelling the coffee in the morning, even growing up. And then that being part of something that I love, like it just, it just feels like me. So this is one of the beautiful mysteries to me that I'm discovering as I've exited full-time ministry and have gone into full-time farming is that there is something just so material about rituals that make us feel more full as human beings right? Whether that's a coffee in the morning or some other thing, like I feel like the spiritual tradition I grew up in really dismissed the value of kind of material rituals. And I don't mean that in any kind of weird way, but just the practice of like making coffee every morning is a ritual or drinking coffee, even drinking coffee in the evening after your kids go to bed is its own form of ritual. And as you're describing the calming effect that it has and this grounding effect of like making you, you, I think of all the other things in my life that do the same thing for me, that they're these physical practices, these physical actions, whether it's, I don't know, something as weird as like the way I dry myself off after a shower or the way that I scramble eggs in the morning or going out to feed the chickens or whatever it is. There are these practices that the act of doing them helps make me me. 
and it's rooted in place, right? It's rooted in specific behaviors. It's rooted in something I can feel and touch and taste and smell. And I think that's beautiful. Kevin, have you read the book, um, Liturgy of the Ordinary? Dude, I love that you brought that up. That, okay, getting back to what we were talking about before, um, or maybe actually I think we mentioned on your podcast how everyone has been telling me to watch the show alone. <laughs> so if everyone's telling me to watch the show alone, everyone's telling me to read the book, The Liturgy of the Ordinary, which That's is so fantastic. And I haven't actually read it. So no, the answer to that is no, I haven't. That's so funny that I keep doing that. I keep bringing up things that everyone else is telling you. Um, yeah, it just, it reminds, what you just said reminds me of that. And it, it talked kind of the premise of the book is that there are these, um, tasks or there's these things, there's these like traditions of, uh, that we do. I, I forgot the word you just used, but there's like, there's these behaviors that we do kind of repetitively, uh, every day. And yet somehow they can tap into like this deeper part of who we are and, and the, even like the connect with these deeper parts of our soul. And one of the, like one example that comes to mind is something as simple as making your bed every morning. And this is actually something that we've been doing as a family. And I've been doing with my kids is I have my kids make their bed every morning. And when we make it, we talk about what, if you were asked my kids right now, like how does making a bed remind you of Jesus? They would tell you that Jesus takes messy things and he makes them beautiful. And so every time we make a bed, we take what was messy and it, we try to make it beautiful, just like Jesus takes the messy stuff in our life and makes it beautiful. And so it just, it reminded me of that, like these tasks that we do every day that can like have these really deep meanings in our soul. Do you talk about that in one of your books? I do. Yeah. Yeah. Just trying to use like, uh, there's a, in one of the books I wrote, I, I talk about having like using 30 second devotionals mm. where you're just trying to talk to your kids about Jesus in everyday life. Cause I think there was a big disconnect for me growing up in church that like faith was just so compartmentalized and it didn't actually have any practical use in real life. And so I'm trying to figure out like, how do I talk to my kids about Jesus and how the message and the way of Jesus actually changes everything that we do day to day. And it's not just this thing that we kind of set aside and sometimes it makes sense and sometimes it doesn't, but it, it, it like the kingdom of Jesus is supposed to bleed into every area. And then I'm just trying to figure out how do I talk about that in as many 30 second examples as I can throughout the day. And the making the bed piece would be one of them. Of Dust and Divinity is an ongoing conversation carrying over from one episode to the next. Like if the podcast itself were a table in the back corner of your local pub, and each round of guests are like friends gathered at the table in free-flowing conversation. And if those friends were left a slip of paper from their previous loafers at the table by which to begin their chat. So here's the note left on that proverbial table, and it serves as the jumping off point for this episode. As I've lived and worked from America to Kenya and from the corporate retail world to my family's farm, I've seen glimpses of beautiful people who have lived divided no more. Mostly it's normal people doing normal things who have managed to connect their everyday lives to something way bigger than themselves that breaks open the world in new ways. And from their big lives, I've come to enjoy the vast smallness of my own life. For I am just a speck of dust. Yet in all those ordinary people I've met, I see something sparkle that looks like divinity. We each, you and I and everyone, hold little pieces of the answers to life's biggest questions. 
Together, perhaps we can begin to answer those big questions. Because of this belief, I find myself connected to them and to you through deep time, geologic time, at the speed of light and the click of a button. So you both are people who, to some degree or another, make a living connecting with people. How do you guys keep it authentic? That's a really good question. Um, I kind of feel like myself um, as a type four um, on the Enneagram, our motivation is authenticity. (laughs) And so the struggle that, uh, so like my default is probably too authentic, oversharing, too open that kind of thing. Um, and I absolutely have a huge curiosity about just people in general, why we do what we do, um, what, how other people think that's differently than me. I just find it endlessly fascinating, which I'm sure is kind of what led me into what I do now. Um, but the part that has been really hard for me in the authenticity piece is, um, being open about, um, yes, I I need money to pay my bills and I need to sell things. And that part um, is definitely, it's a part of my business, but also articulating that like, um, I want to help you and I don't just want your money um, is, feels like a tight rope walk. Um, because if, um, you're marketing minded or PR savvy at all, um, selling things, um, you really have to take a chunk of authenticity out of it. And it's kind of robotic how you have to remind people of what you sell and constantly kind of be plugging that. Um, and that's been a really hard balance for me to walk is yes, I need to be smart in how I'm running my business and do the things like send emails and, um, remind people of what I sell and that kind of thing. Um, but the authenticity part of me, like it cringes so much every time like that's what the focus is because I just want to like grab people by their shoulders and just be like yes I I have to charge for my time but I also like I just want to help you and you probably could convince me really quickly not to charge you (laughs) (laughs) that's so beautifully honest I love that what what I'm hearing from you is that there is some kind of a, a mental model that says if I tell people I need to make money, then somehow that compromises my ability to be authentic. Is it, am I hearing you correctly? Yeah, that's definitely an inner monologue of um, if I'm if I am charging people, then I can't completely care. Like I'm caring about the money, not the people. And I think it's a lot of that is because that is a that is a model that we've seen from a lot of businesses and a lot of businesses. Um, a, do that and they don't do the people part well, um, but they're really good at selling things. And then there's people that um, do the people part really well, but then they don't charge what they're worth. And so in a lot of ways, it it almost does feel sometimes like you have to choose one or the other. Yeah. I, I mean, I definitely resonate with that. I, the first few years of uh, dad tired when I was starting dad tired and trying to help guys lead their family while I wasn't trying to start anything. Like I, it was literally just me processing for the sake of processing because I just needed an outlet to get my thoughts out and podcasting and writing seemed 
like it fit best for my personality and it was easiest for me to process that way. And then an audience kind of grew and I thought it, it turned into, you know, unintentionally where I was finding myself like this was my job. And I just was always like, man, I don't, this feels so weird. Like any money thing just feels so weird. And it, it feels weird today, even it being like a full-time thing, it still feel, feels weird. And I'm trying to figure out different ways to, I had a friend tell me that he's like, if Jared, if you're an amazing baker and you, you bake the best pies ever, um, but you don't know how to run a bakery, nobody's going to eat your pies because you're, you're not going to have a bakery anymore. And so you have to figure out how to run the bakery. Otherwise, nobody's going to get to experience your pies that you make that are amazing. And that was a little bit more helpful for me because I was like, well, I want people to, I think people are getting helped and I think I'm being used to like help people in some way. Um, and I guess that would all go away if there's no quote unquote bakery, but even to this day, like it still feels hard. I guess the only way that I kind of like, I can, it makes it easier for me is when I'm thinking through, I want to create the things that I really, really, really believe are the absolutely most valuable things for the people who are engaging with what I do. And, uh, if I'm, if I don't make like something that's worth buying then it does feel slimy if i just like crank out some kind of product or thing that people buy and it's you know half of what i thought i could do my best that feels slimy but if i'm like man i think this is actually going to pay this is actually going to help them and it's something i would even pay for as a normal consumer um it helps feel a little bit better but (laughs) whenever you're trying to help people and there's money involved it always gets weird there's like no way that that i feel like that doesn't happen yeah. And I, I resonate that as a three being really driven by worth and value. Like I, I feel like I have to be putting something of value into the world for it to even be worth being free. Right. And then it has to be like exceptionally valuable for me to feel like I could charge money for it. Yeah. Um, which you guys are just way further down the path than me in that area. And so I'm just soaking in everything I'm hearing from you. And it's, it's fun even already hearing Jared, how kind of your three side is coming out and Elizabeth, how your four side is coming out, um, as you struggle through what it means to be this authentic creator and influencer in the world that really is predicated on your ability to connect with people. Yeah, definitely. And I think something that's um, helped me the most in this process has been, um, I mean, my, my biggest, um, money maker, I guess you could say is, um, coaching sessions. And so I do about five hours of coaching sessions a week. And at the end of each of them, I send out a survey that I basically just ask people like, how did it go for you? Um, like, do you have any tips? And I'm always terrified every time I send those out. Cause of course I'm, I'm opening, being vulnerable, opening myself up to, um, even const- constructive feedback or maybe just blatant criticism, which can always be hard, but, um, God has used it as such a blessing for me that I think I maybe have only gotten like two constructive criticisms out of my, like, a hundred forms that people have filled out. And it, he's actually just used it as a blessing of people just confirming, like, this is worth something. This is worth something. This helped me. Um, and I think I go back to that a lot of like, like, okay, yes, there is 
I am making money. There's part of this that feels weird to me, um, but I can see the value. The value becomes tangible um, when I get those words back from the people that it's helped. So in both of your guys' platforms, you influence more people than you could ever possibly get to know. Um, you know, you can look at different socio models of how many human connections we can handle in our lives. But at the end of the day, both of you guys have a range of influence that extends beyond that. Do you ever struggle with knowing and being known as a human soul within the space of your influence? Um, I'd love for you to unpack the question a little bit more, Cabin, so I understand it a little bit more. What do you mean by, do you mean like being known by the community that we're serving? Yeah. So that's, that's, thank you for reflecting that back to me. Cause I think that points to my own internal assumptions about the world. Um, so let me just pause and be a little bit more self-reflective in my question asking. I think for me being a three wing four, right? So I'm, I'm hovering right in between you two. Unless Jared, are you a three wing four also? Do you know? I don't remember my okay, wing. You're fine. That's fine. No problem. Um, I want to contribute to the world in a meaningful way, but I also want to do it in a way that's completely authentic. And part of my internal mental framework says that authenticity is being known, knowing the people who I'm interacting with and also being known by the people I'm interacting with that when I lose some of that social currency of knowing, then it, I, I wrestle with this is my own personal struggle. I wrestle with it flattening or cheapening the interaction and kind of, as Elizabeth was saying, you drag that out to its ultimate conclusion and you get to a place where there's really no human connection. There's just a financial transaction, right? So I imagine that you guys are in spaces where you're getting messages from people every day that you'll probably never hear from again and who you can't possibly take the time to get to know in a really deep and substantive way. And so just how do you manage that? How do you manage staying present to yourself and your own soulfulness and also lead a large community towards um, some really beautiful goals that you guys have in, in your respective communities. Yeah. Well, first, um, I want to say that I'm like terrified to have Elizabeth on the line here because I feel like she's knows too much about me without even knowing me just based on her experience of knowing that <laughs> I love that so, so well. much. Oh man, that's great. <laughs> so I'm like picking my words so carefully, but I'm still, I know it's going to show like whatever I am is just going to bleed out no matter what. So <laughs> just, just going for it here, but I feel I real it, nervous. Um, yeah. So I think that, I think that the podcast allows me to like, in some ways feel like I'm known, right? Like I feel like I just kind of every week I just kind of word vomit. This is what I'm struggling with. This is what I'm going through. And I just kind of let the guys like hear that. And I know, and I always feel like even though I'm talking to a computer screen, I, st I can imagine the faces that I'm talking to. And I feel like in some ways they know me. Uh, and then I'm just like going to ramble my thoughts out loud here. Uh, Please. I love that. And, and then, so 
I do get messages uh, every day of guys who are like, man, this is helpful. Or man, can you help me process this or whatever? And in some way, like my first, uh, this is where I'm really going to be like, I'm nervous because Elizabeth is going to tell me this is exactly why you do this, Jared. Here's your, it feels like, a, like I'm listening. <laughs> but there's a, when I interact with somebody um, that first time, so let's just, I'll give you an example. Somebody shoots me a message or a message on uh, Instagram and says, Jared, today's podcast was so helpful for me, man. Hey, I'm going, I'm like struggling through this in my marriage or in my parenting. Can you help me process that? And my first reaction is like, I'm all in. I'm just like, I'll, I'll send them a long message back. I'll pour out my heart that one time. And then if they send me a follow-up message that kind of it's, it's equally as long, uh, I'm just immediately drained. And like, I went from like, I care about you so much. Let me walk through life with you. I'm going to be your best friend to like, I don't have time for this. <laughs> like, I just feel like I don't know what part of my three kicks in, but I've m removed my like shepherd hat and I've just gone full on. Like I've got a million other ideas and things that I'm trying to trying to accomplish today. And I just simply can't even reply or think about what, like talking to you anymore. And so I feel like I've got a really shallow shepherd tank. Um, I don't even know if that's answering at all your question, Kevin, but that was the first thing that came to mind when I thought about it. And I actually noticed this when I was working in the church world, what I would meet with somebody one time for one hour and they would walk away like, man, Jared like loves me. He's in this with me. And then I noticed I would like fail people relationally because they would want to do like a follow-up meeting or a follow-up call. And I just didn't have the capacity, like emotional capacity to keep walking with them for long-term, uh, in a long-term relationship. And, uh, and I know that I like it, people even express that to me, like, man, you kind of let me down and like, I'm really struggling in my marriage or whatever. And I thought you were going to be with me and I feel like you kind of bailed on the relationship. Um, so anyway, now I'll let Elizabeth assess why I did that so poorly. <laughs> oh, well, I mean, I, I'm saying that tongue in cheek. I'm saying that tongue in cheek. Cause I would, I know, honestly, I would love to have some objective feedback on my blind spots there. Yeah, well, I mean, I definitely, I relate to that too, just with um, the importing of messages and the kind of excitement that comes at the beginning of like, wow, I'm really impacting people. I'm like, this is really cool. And I think that um, flattery turns into um, feeling used really quick because um, mm. you can feel that at first that like, oh, this is so cool. I'm going to help them. And I think sometimes because I, I do the long reply thing too. I get excited. I drop whatever I'm doing. I do the long reply thing. And then if they still have questions, I'm like, wait, wait, wait. I, I put a period at the end of what I said. Like what I said should have fixed you, right? <laughs> yeah. Like um, you shouldn't have any more questions after this. I'm done. Um, And so if they keep going, all of a sudden it gets into a point that I'm like, oh my gosh, now I'm like coaching this person. And like, this is not the right context for this. Like I get, I get paid for my time. Um, and it can really quickly, um, move into that. And I think it is, I think it's that difference between like at the beginning there's flattery and then all of a sudden we start to feel kind of used by these people because they don't mm. know us. And what are they after? They're after our wisdom or whatever we've, we've been trained or what we've gotten through experience. Um, and I've seen a ton of influencers on social media, like bang the drum over and over and over again. of like, don't ask to pick people's brains for something that they did not like get for free. Like if, mm. if there is a method that you can pick their brain, like a coaching session or something like that, like you need to respect them enough to actually pay for that. And I think that, um, 
people will get into our DMs, especially with flattery and stuff like that, and they will kind they will milk us dry if we let them. Um, and it's really hard to have boundaries there because the excitement of flattery at the beginning is so enticing. Hmm. Um, but yeah, for just Cabin's question in general, um, of just, yeah, uh, wanting to be known in my, um, sphere of influence, um, I would say that being known and, um, feeling understood are huge motivators for me, um. I think a part of that is being an Enneagram four. I think part of that is just human. Um, it's hard to lead and be motivated to serve people that you don't feel like know you because in, after a while, even if they're saying like, oh my gosh, you're the greatest ever, it's going to roll off of you like rain on a rain jacket because you're going to be like, oh, well, they don't know me. They don't know mm-hmm. that I just blew up at my kids. They don't they don't know uh, my backstory. They don't know what I've done to get here. And I think um, a lot of that is reinforced by, um, I just look in my comments sometimes and they, they're talking about me like I don't read them. Um, Um, Which always is a really weird feeling. They'll say things like, Oh, I think they meant this. Or uh, maybe she was talking about this or they will um, correct a typo in a really, um, unkind way <laughs> um or I'll, mm. i will get messages from people that really um do make you feel like wow you don't think there's a person on the end, other end of this message mm. do you um and all of that is really jarring just as a person in general and so um i've now been doing this instagram page for almost two years and within two months of me starting this Instagram page, I had over 10,000 followers. So I've been doing this um, big Instagram game for a while now. And I think really the only thing that's helped me is to kind of um, give up in a sense, the idea that I'm going to be known and loved and appreciated for who I am by them. Because ultimately, um, I mean, we are all selfish people and we are after what will give us value, um, not usually after that human connection. Like if there is human connection, that's great. But usually that's an afterthought. Um, So I have really dug in this past couple of years to the people that do really know me and really surrounding myself with those five or 10 people and allowing myself to be fully known and fully loved by these people that ultimately point me back to Jesus, who is the only one who will ever fully know me and fully love me the way that actually is um, satisfying. And that's our show. Thank you so much for joining this ongoing conversation as we seek to unearth meaning in the everyday stuff of life. For show notes or to connect with this community of seekers, visit us online at www.ofdustanddivinity.com. Join our Facebook group, which is called Of Dust and Divinity Podcast Community, and engage us on Instagram at Of Dust and Divinity, all one word. Hey, and if this conversation was meaningful to you like it was meaningful to me, leave a rating and a review on your favorite streaming platform so that more people just like us can discover this podcast and join the conversation themselves. And don't forget to subscribe. Here is a sneak peek of the next episode. Enjoy. Yeah, so um, I'm not sure if it's death as much as um, I have a 
really, really high respect for grief um, that I wish um, others were as strong in as I think type fours are. <laughs> um, I just think that uh, as a type four, um, if an emotion is really, really loud and strong, um, like I believe it like needs to be felt and it needs to like be respected because there's a reason it's there, even if it's extremely painful. Um, so all the things in my life that have happened that have caused great grief, um, like one of the parts of it that has been the most painful is just how I felt, I felt like others were very quick to dismiss my grief, um, or wanting to fix it. And I'm like, oh no, this is here to stay because this thing that I'm grieving over was important. A huge thank you to my wife for supporting this passion project. And a great big thank you to Michelle Lim of the Everly Collective for all the brand content, including the name of this podcast and the cover art. As you go through your day, remember these words of Rainer Maria Rilke. Be patient toward all that is unsolved in your heart and try to love the questions themselves. Do not seek the answers which cannot be given to you, for you would not be able to live them. And the point is to live everything. Live the questions now.